Hey everyone, my name is Anthony Cirelli and I'm the co-host of this new podcast we're going to call Lost Teams. You might be wondering what Lost Teams is. Well, each episode, my co-host Andrew and I, who I'm going to introduce you to in a second, are going to tell the story of a professional sports franchise that has disappeared, moved, become insolvent, no longer exists in the way it did back then. Uh, and it can be from any major sport, minor or professional. We're going to start off in North America, but we might eventually get to other Parts, other countries, other parts of the world. So I'm going to introduce you to my co-host and co-creator of this podcast, Andrew Lennox. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Anthony? Doing really well. So Andrew, uh, as the co-creator of this podcast, it was really your idea. I remember when you texted me the idea, and I thought it was it was pretty cool. But what what made you kind of come up with this this Lost Teams podcast idea? Well, it, ever since I was a kid, I've always had an interest in, um, you know, vintage type sports merchandise and, you know, um, you know, hats and whatnot, mostly <laughs> like hats. And um, that kind of turned into just researching and finding, looking up stats for old time franchises that no longer exist. That sounds good. Very, I, I share your interest in those teams, especially when it's like they have some mind blowing fact about a player that was on there or some, some sort of resulting, uh, either team moving there or a professional team taking over. So yeah, I, I don't blame you at all. So this first episode we're going to get into, you're going to talk a little basketball, right? That's correct. Awesome. And I'm going to talk a little bit of hockey. So, uh, we might as well get it started. Do you, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Sure. I can go first. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, go ahead, kick it off. My source for the history on the Pittsburgh Pipers, you know, Condors and Pioneers was the Condors page at Remember the ABA. Awesome. Sounds like an excellent, uh, excellent site that people should check out if they want some more old sports facts. <laughs> Definitely. Tons of useless knowledge on there. I um, actually decided to pick a team that, uh, you know, I'm mostly a hockey fan, but, you know, I've, I've always been interested in the American Basketball Association, mostly because uh, of the movie Semi-Pro, Semi-Pro that I most recently watched, actually, a couple of days ago. It was probably the last movie I watched, but uh, um, yeah, so I think it's loosely based on, you know, the ABA and uh, a franchise that was in that league. Um, so the team I'm going to focus on is the Pittsburgh Pipers. Um, and they were in the American, one of the first franchises, um, in the American basketball association that started in 1967. Uh, so yeah, just to go back a bit into talk a little bit first about the American basketball association. It was a professional basketball league from 1967 to 1976. Eventually it merged with the NBA. There was, I think six teams that, uh, merged to that league because the ABA was struggling. It, it, I think it ended with six teams and then, you know, it started actually with at, at its, I, I'm not sure if it started with 11 teams, but at its peak, it had 11 teams. And then every team that didn't get moved into the NBA had its own mega bowl like the tropics did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, there was, I think a dispersal draft on some of the franchises that folded for players to <laughs> merge into the NBA. So, that was the that was the Hollywood happy ending. Everyone else just got the shaft and didn't, didn't get to play in the NBA, pretty much. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, the team actually began going into the Pipers. Now the team actually began playing the ABA's first season, which was in 1967, 68. 
And um, the team was actually very successful on the court. They had a regular season record of 54 and two. Mm. Um, They were actually led by um, a legend in the ABA and he actually moved on to the NBA, but had some injury problems. He had most of his success in the ABA. He was an ABA legend, Uh, power forward um, and future Hall of Famer, Connie Hawkins. He led the ABA to, um, led the ABA with 26.8 points per game, actually. So, wow. Yeah, he was a superstar in the league. Um, so, in their first season, uh, the team, like I said, you know, with the 54 and 2 regular season record, and they were very successful um, on the court, I should say. And they swept through the ABA playoffs, um, eventually defeating the New Orleans Buccaneers. Um, Actually, in uh, four, they won four games to three. So it was a battle to win that first title. Um, and actually, Hawkins was the finals MVP. So he wow. had a huge year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in their inaugural season, the Pipers averaged about 3,200 fans per game, which um, was okay at that time. Um, they shared the uh, Pittsburgh Civic Center, which is now, which was nicknamed the Igloo. Uh, so they actually um, aired the Igloo with the Pitts, NHL's Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, obviously, we know a little bit about the success the Penguins had. You know, Mar- Mario Lemieux and Yarmir Yager, <laughs> some Stanley Cups, Sidney Crosby, obviously. So. Um, with decent attendance and success on the court, the franchise actually moved to Minnesota in the summer of 1968, which was a little strange because, you know, they were getting average crowds and, you know, the team definitely probably would have got more popular with how they were doing on the court and winning the championship, you know? I was curious. Uh, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but I yeah, was... No I, problem. I was curious when you said their uh, their record. So I looked up their winning percentage or calculated it. So the NBA record for best winning percentages was the Golden State Warriors of a few years ago. Their winning percentage was 890. So yep. the, the Pipers in their first season would have had a record winning percentage of 964. Oh, so wow. that's pretty incredible. Now, I mean, <laughs> two losses only? That's nuts. Really? Yeah. But uh, continue. Sorry to interrupt. I thought oh, that was no, interesting. that was a good interjection into this podcast <laughs> so uh minnesota had a actually you know so i said that the pipers ended up moving to the twin cities um in minnesota and minnesota had a team actually in the aba's first season they were named the muskies um a fish correct that's a fish correct um uh, so the the crowds were terrible actually in the twin cities for the muskies and the franchise picked up and moved to Miami to become the Miami Floridians, Original. which I think was the team <laughs> that, that was loosely uh, that semi-pro was basically loosely based on. They, they were the Tropics, but I think That's... it might have been there might have been a correlation. Only Florida, uh, only Florida would just be like, yeah, whatever. We're the Floridians. Everybody right. knows that we're that we're we're an interesting breed of people, so we might as well be our own mascot. Exactly. I wonder what the mascot was. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the league offices were located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the league commissioner actually lived. 
So they wanted to keep a team there. And the, the commissioner was actually George Mikan, who was an NBA legend. Um, he played for the Minneapolis Lakers before and won a bunch of championships before they you know, eventually moved to L.A. So he lived in Minneapolis, and the Pipers uh, played at the Met Center, where the um, any, another NHL correlation where they – NHL's Minnesota North Stars used to play. Uh, the arena that they played in was actually torn down and now is a parking lot for the U.S.'s biggest mall, the Mall of America. And uh, the Pipers' first year in Minnesota, they once again made the playoffs, but in the first round, they ended up losing to, who else? The Miami Floridians. <laughs> uh, so attendance for the Pipers was just as bad as the Moskies. The you know the franchise that moved to become the Floridians, um, so they 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 decided to move back to Pittsburgh. Um, the the co-owner at the time, Gabe Ruman, decided to move them back to Pennsylvania because he couldn't figure out anywhere else to go. The first the first season actually back in Pittsburgh, the team struggled on the court and had low fan attendance. Um, they were soon bought by a new ownership and decided to change their name and kind of revamp the franchise, get some excitement back and see if they could draw more fans. So uh, from the 70-71 season, the Pittsburgh franchise, they actually had to name the team contest and the team decided on the Pittsburgh Pioneers. Uh, pretty good name, you know, Yeah, flowed a bit, but <laughs> that name hardly lasted at all because a local NIA NAIA school, uh, Point Park College, threatened to sue and remove the nickname. That's just you got you got uh, dominated by a NAIA college team. That is sad for a professional sports franchise. <laughs> right. I, I can't imagine the school is bigger than you know five thousand. You know what that you know what that reminds me of though is when the Vegas Golden Knights uh, first started. I think they were uh, the Army, the uh, the U.S. Military Academy. I think gave them a hard time because they were also the go- also the Knights or the Golden Knights. And I think there was a little bit that. there was a little bit of a Twitter spat. I don't remember if it was like a, a full on like legal issue, but it was there was definitely a similar situation. Yeah, I definitely remember that. It, it, I think it got settled pretty quick, but I do remember there was a little spat for sure. Um, so going back into, well, I guess <laughs> the Pioneers, um, they had to change their name, obviously. So the new ownership decided on the Condors. So the fans didn't want to really get to the name, actually. Uh, with a new nickname, the Condors, the the team still struggled on the court and failed to make the playoffs by one game. Oh. And I believe the Floridians beat them out. Again. <laughs> Again. Just haunting this franchise. <laughs> uh, so a crazy stunt that happened during during that season. Um, the, the Condors GM's name was Marty Blake. He was the current GM at that time. Made every seat that wasn't sold available in the arena to fans so free the tickets were free so they gave out 11,012 tickets for free <laughs> a professional franchise that's brutal uh, yeah so about 8,000 about 8,000 around 8,000 fans showed up um, and obviously ownership was not amused by this at all so so Blake must have not got permission from ownership and he was fired 
Justifiably uh, so. Yeah, yeah, probably not the best move. Uh, so the only really memorable moment of that season was when Charlie Helicopter Hentz, I believe it's Hentz, H-E-N-T-Z, shattered two backboards in one game. Which not is bad. <laughs> which is insane. I mean, I, I can't imagine the plexiglass was – is it plexiglass? I think so. The ABA probably was cheaping out or the – the. that uh, just reminds me of, of – I always think about semi-pro when we're ta- talking about this story and like the – how uh, Jackie Moon was always so cheap. Like whoever the the owner of the uh, of the Pioneers or sorry the Condors probably was used was paying like for like five dollar backboards like made of like right parchment paper wax paper or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? But uh, still pr- pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the seventy seventy one season began with the Condors. Um, wondering you know ownership wondering what they could do to get some excitement into pittsburgh and you know see if they can make some money i guess in an effort to rejuvenate the condors franchise ownership lured defending nba champion the milwaukee bucks star player lou alcinder to play and actually play in an exhibition game with the condors the the team had to pay the bucks twenty five thousand dollars in order to make this happen Alcindor, who we all know as uh, now NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was injured right before the game. And then only about 8,000 to 9,000 fans showed up for the game, so very low attendance after much hype. This season, as I said, had a rough start, so they ended up going 4-6 and six in their first 10 games, um, which resulted in the Condors firing their head coach. Um, so the team was so bad, the average attendance dropped to about a thousand fans per game. That's brutal. Yeah, I'm not sure how big the igloo was, but it had to be at least fifteen thousand, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's like a typical hockey arena, basketball arena is like fifteen to seventeen, I think, on the low end, and like mid twenties on the high end, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, not good crowds at all. Not much fan support there for them in Pittsburgh, but I, I guess. It just was a bad luck franchise from the start, unfortunately. Uh, you know, off the court. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, with these terrible crowds, the Condors ownerships during the season announced the franchise would be re- relocating once again, which, what, what a weird move to just announce that during the regular season and not when the season was completed. <laughs> Okay, so like I said, the the uh, Condor struggled terribly this year as well as they did in the past, and the Condor's ownership soon announced the franchise would be relocating once again during the regular season, which is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, the team's final home games in Pittsburgh drew about, <laughs> actually averaged about 690 fans the last few games at the Civic Center, and they began playing home games in other Pennsylvania cities. <laughs> the, the nomads, or the pioneers. Right. They're pioneering a new or an old barnstorming style of play. Right. I don't know I keep forgetting about... they were called yep. the Condors, sorry. but I, they, No, they were you can call them <laughs> three different names if you want. There's three three names to choose from. So, uh, so they, as they started bounce around in Pennsylvania cities, I'm assuming they didn't go to Philadelphia because the 76ers were there, but I don't know a ton about Pennsylvania. So 
I don't know where else they would have played. <laughs> um, so the Condors played their last, actually their last home game in Tucson, Arizona. Yikes. Yeah. So ownership tried to find a more suitable market for the Condors, but failed to do so, and the franchise folded. Um, so, you know, this franchise was unable to exist long enough to, you know, merge into the the NBA, which the ABA and NBA had a merger in 1976, where um, six teams actually joined uh, the ABA. I'm sorry, the NBA, and that included the Denver Nuggets, the New York Nets, the Indiana Pacers, and the San Antonio Spurs. That's only four teams. Coffee Black's was, new team from uh, semi-pro. It, it was it actually there was only six teams in the league at this time when they merged. So the, there are two teams um, didn't get folded. The I think it was like St. Louis, and I can't remember the other team, but. Um, there's so many weird I mean there's so many weird cities back then even in the 70s that like professional basketball teams were located in like if you look at the NBA even before that in the 50s and 60s it was like Fort Wayne and like Syracuse and just strange <laughs> middle of yeah, nowhere teams that just didn't have don't have really I mean they have college sports but yeah not known for and minor league teams I guess but not more known for you know the big leagues yeah yeah, so, um, yeah, and, like, one of the teams that dispersed was, or, I'm sorry, folded was the, I, think, I forget, maybe the St. Louis Spirit, but... Um, that sounds right. Yeah, it's just interesting because, you know, in the times we've, since we've been alive, there, there I don't think there's ever been professional basketball in, like, St. Louis or, no. um, well, Pittsburgh. We weren't alive during this time. Um so yeah, it just it just doesn't seem. When I think of Pittsburgh or St. Louis, I just don't see any professional basketball. I don't associate the NBA with those leagues or the ABA. But anyways, uh, despite chaos on the court, the team had three future basketball Hall of Famers. Of course, Connie Hawkins was one of them, um, and then two head coaches, Buddy Jeanette and Vern Michelson. Yeah, so like I said, this franchise really struggled, at least off the court, and really could never find their footing and, and you know, folded. And, yeah, that's that's the Pittsburgh, what they start off as, the Pipers, mm-hmm. moving into the Pioneers for like a day, and then the Pittsburgh Condors. That's the history of their franchise. Yeah, it's interesting how they uh... – kind of how they moved so much reminds me of the Raiders or the, or the Rams a little bit. Like only those teams were already established and because they're NFL teams, they had like, I mean, plenty of money. So it wasn't like they were fighting to survive. It was just like, although the chargers might be, you never know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Who knows what the chargers, but they'll survive somehow. Who knows though? Yeah. Um, So I forgot to mention though, the chant, the, you know, the Piper's first year, I you know, I said they had a 54, and two record and won the ABA championship. That was the only professional basketball ch- uh, championship that ever ha- happened in Pittsburgh. That's that's oh. impressive. I mean, that's like uh, another piece of bar trivia you could you could put out there. Like, oh, what is <laughs> who won the person? Like a trick question. That like, reminds yeah. me of a. Uh, this isn't a, a really a sports question, but wh- which city is further west, uh, Reno or Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. Um, people always say LA cause it's on the coast, but like geographically Reno is further West. So that's one of those trick questions. Really? Like, what, who was I, the only... abs- 
Like, wh- whoever who has did Pittsburgh? Who was the only team to win a professional basketball championship in Pittsburgh? Nobody. Pittsburgh doesn't have an NBA team. You're right. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually had no idea on the Reno thing either. So yeah, it's weird. It's it's counting me for that useless type of trivia. Yeah, I love useless trivia. <laughs> I am going to tell the story of Los Angeles's first professional hockey team, the Los Angeles Blades. They only existed, yeah, yeah. They only existed for like six seasons, but they have a, not only did they have a very uh, interesting kind of roster involved in, in just six year existence, but they did something that changed the landscape of Los Angeles sports history pretty much forever. Uh, and I don't think people in Los Angeles or around the country really know who they are, except for huge hardcore hockey historians, sure. uh, let alone the impact that they had. So uh, let's get into it. All right. Uh, and my sources, before I get going so I don't forget, was uh, one article called No One Was Killed Outright, LA Surprising Ice Hockey History, which was a 2014 article in LA Weekly by Jim Thurman. And that cites uh, an early, early, early LA Times article uh, from a guy who watched the first ever hockey game, supposedly, in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, yeah, there was 50 forgotten stories. It was almost the LA Blades, which came from a 2016 NHL.com article by Shen Peng. Uh, I found some information in a book called Ice Warriors, the Pacific Coast slash Western Hockey League, 1948 to 1974 by John C. Stott. And yeah, so let's get it started. Hockey uh, has had a long history in LA, even though really the Kings started in 1967. We'll get into that a little later. Hockey has been played in LA as far back as 1917, when the first recorded game in Los Angeles was played. Uh, And a gentleman or LA Times writer by the name of Ward Fowler uh, covered the game in his story headlined Ice Hockey Introduced Enthusiastic Fans. No one was killed outright, in quotes. Uh, the game he described sounded familiar, familiar to modern hockey. It was just as exciting and confounding the new fans. When a player, and this is what Fowler wrote directly, Mm-hmm. When a uh, when a player can't think of anything else to do, he swats the bean toward the goalkeeper with all his might. If this man is lucky, he gets out of the way. If he isn't, they carry him over to one side of the rink, place him gently on his back, and tell him to keep cool until the Undertaker arrives. Which <laughs> wow, I thought it was the a pretty bean? the bean instead of the puck. <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> it's maybe a pretty, they used a bean. Yeah, I mean it's a <laughs> funny way to describe be playing goalie. Just like here, good luck, and hope you don't die. <laughs> right. Um, since then, there's been a lot of hockey played in Los Angeles, including by the University of Southern California and Loyola, Loyola Marymount University, who uh, to this day have club teams. Those two teams have a pretty strong rivalry with each other. But back then, they were varsity teams. Uh, I know LMU had a player eventually go to the New York Rangers back in, this is probably the 40s, and USC uh, USC as a varsity team beat the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers twice. I think this wow, is in the 30s. That's yeah. Huge. Yeah, so uh, not a lot of people know that USC once had a, a varsity hockey team, uh, let alone still has a club hockey team. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Like it seems like hockey kind of had a, a deep history, you know, many many years ago in California, and it seems like it just kind of died until the Kings came. Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was a lot of the when the oil the oil kind of rush or oil they struck oil here in Southern California, a lot of um, people came from elsewhere. And I think a lot of Canadians came and, and brought the game with them. So, uh, sure. uh Makes pretty, sense. I mean, the Zamboni was invented and is still 
uh, built here. So just just oh, down the road. No idea. I have no idea on that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's in Paramount, yeah. California. So it's cool. uh, a pretty interesting, even that history alone. But let's get into the blades. So uh, sure. the first true professional team didn't arrive in LA until 1961 in the form of the Blades. The Blades are part of a league called the Western Hockey League or the WHL, which isn't directly related to, uh, for those hockey fans that are listening, the Western Hockey League, which is the major junior league, um, Mm -hmm. which is part of the CHL uh, that exists today. So although there's some connection, uh, I'll get into that at the very end of the story. the WHL, which was known as the PCHL, uh, short for the Pacific Coast Hockey League, began in 1952, but was considered an amateur league back then because the owners didn't want to pay the NHL's regional rights fee uh, to be professional. And, and basically, they had a monopoly back then. I think they kind of still do. Yeah. At one point, the PCHL, when they were amateur, included teams like the Hollywood Wolves, Fresno Falcons, Los Angeles Monarchs, Oakland Oaks, Pasadena Panthers, and San Diego Skyhawks, as well as the San Francisco Shamrocks. Is that but, an all-California league? It, no, I think there was there was a lot of teams in Canada. I think it was just a big amateur league. Cool. Um, but in 1952, the PCHL absorbed a few other teams and decided to go professional. But by then, the teams in California had already either disbanded or left because they didn't want to be pro, like I said, pay the pro rights. But right. not long after that, Al Leader, who was the owner of the WHL, decided he wanted to attain major league status and thought that starting teams in Los Angeles and San Francisco would really help toward that goal. Sure. So in 1961, the WHL awarded a franchise to Los Angeles. The league moved the Victoria Cougars to L.A. and awarded James Piggott, who had already owned the Cougars, uh, as well as Dan Reeves, the owner of the L.A. Rams and the NFL, co-ownership of the Blades. Huh. Interesting. The Victoria Cougars, I can think of that logo. I've seen it before. Yeah, it's It's like a kind of logo. Yeah. yeah, Talk about the old school, the old school logo guy. (laughs) Right. Um, so the other teams in the blades division of the WHL were all obviously on the West coast, including the Portland Buckaroos, which is, uh, I think a pretty, pretty Portland name. (laughs) That's a cool name actually. Yeah. The Spokane Comets, the San Francisco Seals. And if that sounds familiar, uh, there's a reason uh, their uh, future NHL San Francisco Golden Seals, but we'll we'll add that detail in a little while. All right. Uh, the Seattle Totems. So the Seattle Totems is, uh, I think, still a junior team up there, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe, yeah, I th- not like a major junior team, but I think a... Like a WSHL or a, yeah, one of those Something guys. Like that, yeah. Um, and then the San Diego Gulls joined actually after the Blades were finished or in their last year. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's not a, they don't really carry a thread through to today's AHL Gulls, but a lot, what a lot of teams will do is just take the old kind of historic team names from their region if they're not being used. So that right. was the first Gulls, I think. Gulls version one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Blades formed a natural rivalry with the San Francisco Seals. Ugh, that's hard to say that three times fast. Um, who had a better success during their tenure. L.A. notably had two American college players. They also had an NHL veteran, Doug Bentley, who scored 219 goals in more, in more than 500 NHL games for the Blackhawks Rangers and Rangers. Uh, and then the biggest name and probably the best player in, in Blades history, and I'd be venture to guess uh, uh, the WHL in that era, was Willie O'Ree, who most of you know – sports history know that Willie O'Ree broke the NHL's color barrier when he played for the Boston Bruins in 1957-58. So, right. I uh, actually met Willie O'Ree years ago. Really? That's what yeah. was he like? 
extremely nice man. I mean, very nice. I don't think you can find a better ambassador for the sport of hockey. Ryan, he just had his birthday a few days ago. He's 85. So yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, that is awesome. He is a legend for sure. Um, and so three years after he broke the NHL color barrier with the Bruins, he ended up coming to the Blades. I think he played for a few games for one team in between, but uh, his time in the NHL included 45 NHL games. He scored four goals and had 10 assists. His final NHL season was 1960-61, so the year before the Blades came into existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1964-65, O'Ree led the league with the WHL with 38 goals, so pretty uh pretty good tally even in today's uh, in today's professional hockey leagues oh yeah for sure um in 1961-62 though the blades debuted before 10,000 fans so pretty good number losing seven to three to portland uh <laughs> the game was also broadcast on television no way <laughs> yep yeah early uh well 60 61 yeah it's like the early sports times in, t- in tv history yeah I think. like yeah hockey night in canada existed then yeah. First games. Uh, I, I, I believe so. Yeah. So after their first season, the Blades missed the playoffs, but San Francisco made it. So they get the first kind of early success. They did make the playoffs in their second season, but they were eliminated by the Sham, uh, excuse me, the goal, the Seals uh, of San Francisco in the first round. And then the Seals went on to win the league title that year. So really, like we talked about with the uh, Pipers slash Condors slash Pioneers, uh, Really off to a good start. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, in 1963-64, the Blades had their best season when they were coached by Alf Pike, who was their third head coach in three years. Uh, they went 31-31-8, and eight, but they made the playoffs the first time they made the playoffs. Or no, second time, excuse me. Um, the finals were an all-California affair in 1963-64 with between the Blades and Seals. The Seals were coached by Don Poyle, who is the father of Nashville Predators' longtime president of hockey operations, David Poyle. So some more hockey history in there. Yeah, that's cool. Um, the league was obviously old school. There was a sentence in Ice Warriors that said, "Rugged uh, quote, rugged defenseman Frank Arnett fired up the Blades in game five by, uh, and I'll play the fill in the blank, what did he do? <laughs> He, let me guess, beat someone up. <laughs> yes. Well, good knowledge of old school, rough and tumble, violent hockey. Uh, he yeah. assaulted a referee. So oh. <laughs> there we that go. That would go over really well these days. <laughs> yeah. It would not, uh, would, would be probably expulsion from the league or uh, at least, I mean, I know Criminal it happened. charges maybe. Yeah. It did happen. Re- we, we talked about this. I think it happened in the NHL within the last few years, not like outright punching the referee, but uh, uh-huh. Antoine Vermette slashing a linesman was I, not. I remember that. That <laughs> was weird. Um, I'm trying to think. He, I think he, it, he, he like did it. I mean, as far like watching it on TV as a fan, it looked like he slashed the ref for no reason. Yeah. It was weird. Like, it was strange. So this is what I was thinking of. Uh, on January 27th, 2016, Dennis Weidman struck linesman Don Henderson from behind in a game between the Flames and Nashville Predators where it looks like Weidman's skating to the bench and kind of goes out of his way to knock the linesman over. Um, yeah. And that was – I don't remember what his Did suspension was. Yeah, he was. His suspension was 20-game suspension. Wow. 
Yeah. So, How did, uh, man, yeah, that didn't register with me. <laughs> I'm usually pretty up on those things, but yeah, I, and the more you talk about it, I do remember now. Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll start this back up now. Um, okay. so yeah, uh, you are correct. He assaulted a referee, which, uh, back then probably got him a slap on the wrist today. If you do it like Dennis Weidman did a few years ago, you get, uh, about a quarter of the season taken away from you. So probably have uh, beers with the ref. After yeah. The game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you kind of have to, you, you can't leave that unsettled. Right. Um, but in spite of the assault on the referee, which failed to fire up the blades. The Seals won in six games. Uh, and as would be the case for most of California hockey's time here, the Blades and Seals were always second fiddle to the Giants and Dodgers uh, of baseball. Right. In 1964, there were some bubblings and some rumors of the NHL expanding. So, uh, and there was also some signals from the Blades and Seals that they wanted to join the NHL. They said they might not play in the 1964-65 season and that they would apply for NHL franchises, but the NHL told them to pound sand. They weren't interested in taking any applications from those ownership groups. So they kind of got big-timed by the NHL on the first attempt. Oh, that's too bad. Meanwhile, the Blades and Seals... uh, played or the blades especially played pretty poorly um the seals didn't but they still had designs on joining the nhl uh so much so that the other teams didn't trust them at that point they agreed to pay each whl team forty thousand dollars if they left the league which in that time i failed to look up what that would be now but if you're listening you can google it and then they agreed they agreed to stay in the whl for three more seasons in 1965 the nhl announces a committee to explore expansion which sets in motion the end of the blades in 1966, the NHL announces the six cities they're going to expand into, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, St. Louis, San Francisco, and L.A. At so they, t- were, they were included in the first wave of the, the LA, NHL yeah, um, so, expansion? Yeah, uh, the city of Los Angeles and San Francisco, they, were, they eventually would become two of the what, six teams the NHL added in 1967, but we are getting there. So when that was announced, uh, people thought the Blades' ownership were early favorites to be that LA NHL franchise, but there were warning signs that that might not be the case. At the time, Ken McKenzie, who's a publisher of the Hockey News, who I don't think was related to Bob McKenzie. Not uh, sure on that was quoted as saying they're they're in last place with the biggest city in the league and their attendance hasn't been built up. To me, this points to poor management. Uh, and he was right. There would be uh, definitely some problems, and we'll get to that. Um, they were only averaging a few thousand fans per game at that point and had missed the playoffs in pers- consecutive seasons. So this is where we get to what I call the civil war of uh, hockey, and uh, a lot. this is where most of the information I got from the ShenPengNHL.com article. Okay. So uh, there were multiple different potential owners battling for the LA NHL franchise, uh, the two biggest names that were trying to outsmart each other were Reeves, and, who owned the, by that time, I think, was the only owner of the L.A. Blades, and okay. Jack Kent Cook, who was the owner of the L.A. Lakers. Huh. So uh, they were also competing against Ralph Wilson, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, whose name was formerly on the Buffalo Bills Stadium until just a couple of years ago. New Era Stadium, I believe now. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yep. So no more, no longer Ralph Wilson. But if his name sounds familiar, uh, it does. He is the was one of the ones competing for the LA NHL franchise. Oh, that's crazy. And then Tony Owen, who was a TV producer here in LA, uh, and this is this is where the trickery and the shrewd sports management got and uh, business negotiating got started. 
the Blades had partnered with the Coliseum Commission who owned the LA Sports Arena. And at, at the LA Sports Arena was the Blades' home. That's where they played all their home games. So basically, mm-hmm. the Blades signed an agreement with the Sports Arena extending their lease and saying that no other professional teams could play there, which was a problem for the other bidders because besides the, uh, the LA Sports Arena, there was really only the Long Beach Sports Arena um, that a, that could really house a professional team, but they were kind of, I think, old and not, not in the best shape. On top of that, they eliminated one of their opponents, uh, not in Frank Arnett or whatever his name's way was of assaulting them. Uh, <laughs> they basically made him team president. So they made him part of their ownership group and trimmed down four competitors to three. Okay. But uh, this didn't work. Unfortunately, Jack Kent Cook was like, well, if you won't let me uh, play my hockey, my team's, my, if you won't let my team play their hockey uh, at your stadium, we're just going to build our own. And at the time, it sounded like people were skeptical uh, that he would do that, but he did. He went forward. The progress apparently looked so good that the L.A. City Council basically told the Coliseum Commission, listen, Jack Kent Cook is going to get this done. He's not going to get it done in time to start playing when the NHL wants to play. So you have to renege on your agreement with the Blades to not let other professional teams play. So that's what happened. Basically, the uh, the Coliseum Commission was like, sorry, no more agreement. And uh, before that happened, when it looked like the Blades were the favorite, the other WHL teams had promised to send them like two of their best players so they could be more competitive. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The WHL teams were like, nope, sorry, no dice. So those two things combined made yeah. it pretty uh pretty unlikely yeah so basically they awarded the team to jack kent cook so kings played their first game at the long beach sports arena and then they played uh, a few games there and the rest of their games until december at the la sports arena former home of the blades jack kent cook finished his stadium and that stadium became none other than the great western forum which was home to the lakers and the kings for let's see a good 30-ish years at that point and it's still there hosting concerts it was it's still there hosting concerts it's now a covid testing site um and once staples center came along obviously staples took over but i mean i'm I'm really surprised that the the king basically the arena was Seems like it was built for them and not yeah. the Lakers. And yeah. obviously the Lakers are it's one of the most popular franchises in the world. But but I think it's an example of of hockey, and I think we'll get this into this in further episodes, how hockey kind of helped grow basketball in some ways. Like <laughs> hockey was the bigger sport back then, I think. Not, I mean, more commercially viable, I guess. They had started right. their professional leagues earlier, and they back then the basketball – professional basketball was played, like we said, in small cities and in small Mm -hmm. venues. And the LA Blades, the small, insignificant, seemingly insignificant now in our time, minor league hockey team, basically indirectly caused Jack Kent Cook to build the, or directly caused him to build the Great Western Forum, which became the backdrop for the Lakers Lakers dynasty and for uh, Wayne Gretzky coming to LA and bringing hockey. Ton ton of success there. Yeah, like... The Miracle on Manchester. It's named the yeah. Miracle on Manchester because the forum is on Manchester Boulevard or Avenue. I, as an LA resident, I'm, I feel I'm kicking myself for not knowing whether it's. I think it's <laughs> Manchester Ave. Yeah. Uh, and legendary concerts being held there. So, yeah, that was the basically the genesis of of the Great Western Forum. The Blades' legacy carried on in other ways as well. The Saskatoon Blades, which are the team in the now current Western hockey league the major junior league which is a feeder league for the nhl for those who don't really know it's like the ncaa basketball equivalent of uh for the nba only they don't 
It's not an educational uh, right. league. And kids, <laughs> kids get paid, so it makes them uneligible yeah. to play in CAA hockey. Yeah. That's kind of a what. That's kind of a weird, like contentious point. The WHL and and the uh, Canadian Hockey League would probably like you to think that they're not professionals, but the NCAA considers them professionals. So right. Um, yeah. So that really not important for this, but uh, the Saskatoon Blades, uh, aside from having their name also in their first couple seasons, use their jerseys. So if you look at the, the Blades kind of logo and, and uh, branding uh, in Saskatoon, it's very similar to the LA Blades because it was a feeder team. So that's some, awesome. Yeah, some history that still blue, exists. I think it's kind of almost like Rams colors. Yeah, Rams Lakers-ish colors, yeah. yeah. Um, and then finally, the last legacy for the Blades, which I think is pretty cool, uh, and I, I, to be honest, don't know if this is the case, but uh, there is a basically a beer league team called the Los Angeles Blades, but it's a uh, – well, there was a pro roller hockey team in between in the 90s, but the, the – RHR? I th- that league? I think so. <laughs> or the Pro Beach Hockey League. I think the RHI. I didn't look that up either, but <laughs> some 90s, something – some crazy, wild, wacky sport. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but the current LA Blades are a gay and lesbian beer league team that plays in various leagues around Los Angeles. I think they have a, uh, a lower division team in, in the league that we play in. I've seen them walking around the rink. Sure. Uh, but they've been around for a long time, since 1985. And their, self-des- no yeah, their self-described mission statement is to provide a safe and welcoming environment for LGBT and straight people to play the game of hockey and to help build understanding and eliminate homophobia in the hockey community. So, I mean, the fact that they've been doing that since 85, is incredible and so that is it and if you are interested in in uh, and like i said I, I haven't contacted anybody with the blades so uh but if you are interested in learning more about the la blades current team the lgbt team uh it's www.bladeshockey.com um yeah and that'll be it for the la blades history uh anything you want to add no i it, it like i said it's I something that I just what they created from being you know a a struggling franchise like you know the connection to the Saskatoon Blades and also the locally the LA Blades um, LGBT community team so that team um, you know existing since 1985 is pretty cool and you know even you know, starting the Kings, they, they had a role in starting the Kings and then also the success of the Lakers, who knows what would happen? What did the Lakers would, would the Lakers move from Minneapolis? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think they did. They I think that happened a long they time They moved ago. before that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that. They moved in like the twenties. We're keeping no, this in. It's like a whale's vagina. That's like the Ron yeah. Burgundy, like, like uh, <laughs> named by the Irish in 1957. Um, like George Mike is probably, he's obviously dead, but he's probably like 150 at this point. Yeah, no worries. Um, so, Andrew, is there anywhere before we close out that uh, people can follow you on Twitter or social media, anywhere they can read your work? Yeah, I have a Twitter account at um, A-W-L-E-N-N, A-W-L-E-N. Awesome. And you can find me at, on Twitter at Delhi Tweets. That's D-E-L-L-I-T-W-E-E-T-S. Uh, and feel free to send us any sort of teams you might want to uh, – teams you might, might want us to research and tell the story of or, or any stories you have about these teams. We'll, we'll be happy to talk about them on the podcast. And uh, please, please, please rate us on, on uh, <laughs> iTunes and any sort of uh, podcast system, your podcast 
uh, whatever medium you listen to uh, us on. We'd love to get more listeners. Tell your friends. And uh, yeah, that'll be it. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.